Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Thank you, Dave. Can I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 12, and we read a short portion, verses 1 to 5. I think we might call these words the Great Commission in Old Testament terms. Because, of course, the Great Commission uh, runs all the way through the Bible, not just in the New Testament. But in Genesis 12 and verse 1, we have a new beginning. We read that the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with them. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his neighbor, nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Let's take a moment to pray as we come to God's Word. Father, we pray that as we reflect upon this part of your Word, that the Holy Spirit would take it up and open our eyes to grasp your truth. And Father, may it give light to our eyes and refresh the soul and rejoice the heart for your great name's sake. Amen. I'm sure almost everybody enjoyed watching the spectacular opening to the Olympics. What a, uh, an amazing launch it was with a great light and sound show and an audience of one billion watching the best athletes in the world uh, parading. I couldn't help but think as I watched that how different the launch of the mission of God Sometimes I like to imagine the angels in heaven looking down on earth in despair. They had seen the downward spiral from the beauty of creation to the disobedience of Adam and Eve to the murder of Abel, the decadent society in Noah's day, the attempt at Babel to defiantly create what we today call a secular society from which every thought of God would be removed the scattering of the nations and the confusion of the languages. And the very name Babel or Babylon became synonymous with godless society. And here we have a tragedy beyond description. Human beings created for fellowship with God to reflect the image of God in the world, but now set in rebellion against God, a creation uh, which God pronounced good, now riven through with pain and bereavement and brokenness and futility and death. And one imagines the angels in despair wondering what can be done. And yet God saying to them, I've got a plan. I've got a plan to restore all that is lost. 
I'm going to call and redeem and purify out of all the nations of people for myself, people with new hearts who will be eager for good works. And not only that, but I'm going to restore all things in heaven and on earth. I'm going to create a, a new creation in which dwells righteousness, and the earth will again be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And one imagines the angels amazed at this good news. How could such a thing happen? And the Lord says to him, I've chosen a couple to launch my mission. Now, one would expect it would be some launch and some couple. What kind of couple could head up such a mission? I suppose if they were living in modern times, they must have been thinking of all the, the great superheroes uh, with all the supermen and batmen and superwomen and spidermen, all those who, if you like, in the world of fantasy have come to uh, save the earth, as it were. What kind of couple could God have chosen for this great task? And what a disappointment to be introduced to this elderly, childless, barren couple, Abraham and Sarah. And when they ask, what is God going to do through this couple? Well, he said, I'm going to give them a child. I'm going to make them fruitful. And through them, a great nation. And through that nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And by the way, where are they from? Well, they're from Babylon. They're from that godless society. This is God's launch of his saving mission to the world through this elderly, childless couple. And it strikes me that here is the first example of what the New Testament calls the foolishness of the gospel or the foolishness of God. Because the mission to which God calls Abraham is not easy, nor is it even difficult. It's humanly impossible. And we're reminded right at the very start that the mission of God is not a human enterprise. It's not something furthered by our human ingenuity or strength or power or cleverness, but something that was conceived in the mind of God, is empowered by God, and sustained by God. And yet God, in his amazing condescension, to do what to us is utterly humanly impossible, has always chosen to use weak, sinful, apparently unsuitable human beings like us. It's always the treasure of the gospel through the brittle vessels of clay. Human beings are never asked to do miracles. We're simply asked to obey God, and he is the one who does the miracle. And so here God calls the 75-year-old couple, or somewhere in that region, Abraham leaves his home and his country. He packs up everything and he goes. That is how God launched his mission on the world. Well, what was the outcome? Well, Abraham, though he was past the age of childbearing, he fathered a son through a barren wife, and from that son came a nation, and he was to become the father of all who believe in all generations and in all nations. Move on down through the story, and we have Moses called to lead 600,000 men, women, and children from slavery to freedom through the Red Sea and then into a wilderness where there is no natural supply of food. Again, it's not an easy task. It's not even a difficult task. It's impossible, humanly speaking. But Moses obeyed, and God was the one who opened up the Red Sea and sent the manna, the quails, 
the pillar of cloud. Joshua was asked to bring down the walls of Jericho, but warned that he must not use any human weapons. Again, it wasn't difficult. It was impossible. But God did the impossible. And we move further on to a young virgin called Mary, told that she's going to bear a son in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He will be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And she asked the natural question, how can these things be? Because again, here's something that's not difficult for Mary, it's impossible. And the angel answers, nothing is impossible with God. Move further on and it seems the plan has failed. This Savior of the world has been born, the hope of the nations. And we see him hanging dead on a cross. The disciples are defeated. They have hidden in the upper room for fear of the Jews. But a few days later, we find the same disciples, the apostle Peter, standing on the same streets before the same authorities, saying, you crucified him with the help of wicked men, but God has raised him from the dead. Now we see these same timid disciples being launched on the world into a hostile empire. And if you were a betting person and set the power of the Roman Empire against a little group of unlearned, uneducated nobodies, where would you put your money? Well, it was a no contest. The empire collapsed and the church grew. The day of Pentecost sent the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 converted in one day, and the church began its phenomenal growth. Then God said he was going to choose a very special agent for Gentile mission. Who would be a suitable person for such a mission? Well, he chose a Christ-hating, church-persecuting, Gentile-despising Pharisee, breathing out murder and threats. And God had made him into the greatest evangelist in the history of the church. God's mission has always been God's initiative. It's always his power at work through weak human beings. Here's how Paul the Apostle describes his ministry when he goes to Corinth. He said, I did not come to you with eloquent words of men's wisdom. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, but in the spirit and in power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It always has been a work of God from the beginning. And now, despite intense persecution from the Emperor Nero, the church continues to go rapidly. Its center moves from a Jewish Jerusalem to Gentile Antioch. The church grows from being a despised minority to becoming a majority in most of the empire, from being a persecuted sect to becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that newfound popularity, that newfound acceptance proves to be a mixed blessing because now for the first time the church can seek its strength not in the power of God, not in the wisdom of God, but in the political power and the military power of men. And the church begins to drift from its moorings. A drift from Scripture means that pagan ideas infiltrate the church, virgin mother cults and all kinds of other things are passed on into the teaching of the church, and so the gospel becomes mixed up with myth and legend. 
There's now a worldly struggle for supremacy between the papacy and the Eastern Patriarch in Constantinople and between the papacy and the emperor. Now the Bible is kept from the people and it's held by an elite group of clergy because it's in Latin that the ordinary person can't read. Then Islam comes at a time when the church is at its weakest and wipes out the church in the Middle East and North Africa where it had once been strongest. And the church so-called responds with worldly weapons of the crusades, the slaughter of Muslims, the forced conversion of people to Christ. And then the split comes between the East and West into Western Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. But during those dark ages, there were bright lights because despite the low spiritual condition of the church, courageous monks evangelize barbarian Europe. Europe, as you know today, has been part of Christendom. Men like Columba and Columbanus and Gaul from Bangor here evangelize Britain and Europe. The great creeds like the Nicene Creed set out the great truths about the person of Christ. Godly men like Francis of Assisi seek to reach Muslims not by crusades but by preaching the love of Christ and the gospel. Peter Valdo in France and then into Italy and Austria rediscovers the Bible for himself and begins to preach the gospel and his followers, the Valdensians, experience intense persecution. Then Jan Hus from what today we call Czechoslovakia, from Prague, and John Wycliffe in England, rediscover the Bible for themselves and try to bring the church back. Wycliffe is put to death, and uh, rather Huss is put to death, and Wycliffe loses his professional career as they seek to reform the church. And then God raises up an Augustinian priest in Germany and a shy scholar down in Geneva and sets in motion that spiritual movement they call the Reformation, transforming the face of Europe, restoring the word of God and the truth of gospel, gospel to the church. And now 12 out of the first 13 colonies that leave Europe to go to the new world of America are Protestant and Reformed and Puritan settlements. But for centuries, the church has been fighting itself from within. But now as we come to the 18th century, for the first time, there's a vision again to restore that great commission to take the gospel to all the nations and none more so than the great work led by Count Zinzendorf, the work of the Moravians, sending missionaries to the West Indies and Greenland and the American Indians and South Africa and South America, sending more missionaries than all the other churches put together in the 18th century. We have the Evangelical Awakening led by Jonathan Edwards in America and George Whitfield and John Wesley transforming a dead church in the British Isles and in America, saving Britain from the revolution that tore France apart, establishing the Methodist movement, and suddenly the evangelical churches are beginning to grow in these islands. But it's the 19th century, which is the great era of missionary expansion. William Carey, a young English shoemaker, despite being turned down by the Baptist authorities, is determined to use means to reach the nations with the gospel. The need to have Bible training and the need to have Bible translation and study the culture of the local people and establish missionary societies. 
and so he becomes the great father of modern mission. Spending a lifetime in India with the motto, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And following Kerry was the great movement to Adoniram Johnson, for example, to Burma, Robert Morrison to China, David Livingstone to Africa, Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission and inspired at least another thousand missionaries to go to China after him. Mission societies such as SIM and AIM and UFM and the Bible societies were founded in that century. The student volunteer movement inspired over 20,000 students to leave these shores and serve God overseas. I always think of a young girl I used to work for quite a number of years down in Malile in the CSSM, and I think of a young girl called Amy, Amy Carmichael, who grew up in the little Presbyterian church in Malile, touched by God as a child, and then in her teens, moved by the plight of working girls in Belfast, the shawlies, as she called them, the ones who couldn't afford to have a hat to go to church. But that was God's preparation for Amy to go to India and become one of the great pioneer missionaries in the history of the church working among the poor in India. Coming right up to the start of the 20th century and the explosion of Pentecostalism, a movement whose emphasis was not so much on academic qualification but on the power of God through the Holy Spirit, spreading especially among the poor and the illiterate peoples of the world, reaching those whom the churches were not touching, transforming the church in South America, Africa, East Asia. And as a result, evangelicalism became the major force in quite a number of South American nations, Brazil and Chile, for example. And that century brings thrilling stories of how the gospel came to the Korean people just through one missionary who was gunned down. And as he was gunned down, the, the Bibles fell on the mud in the Pyongyang River. He wasn't there as a missionary. He was there on a geographical expedition because it was the only way into the country. But I think it was 25 years later that missionaries eventually got in and they found up that river dozens and dozens of churches as the Korean people had picked up those Bibles and revival had touched Korea. And today, Korea perhaps is one of the most Christian countries in the world. Over 20% of Korea are evangelical Christians. When I was a student, Mao Zedong and the Red Rebellion, or the, the rebellion to purge uh, China of the Christian church and missionaries was in full swing. Missionaries were expelled. Pastors were imprisoned. It seemed the end of the Chinese church, which then probably had around two million members. But by the end of that regime and after it was over, today there are some 80 million Christians in China, the biggest Christian population of any country in the world. China and Korea have become sending countries. And so we've come to the 21st century. And for the first time, the church is truly a worldwide church with a foothold in every corner of the globe. But the center of gravity has shifted from the Northern Hemisphere, from Europe and America to the Southern Hemisphere, to Asia, Africa, South America. They are the predominant force in the world church today. Mission is no longer from Europe to the rest, but as we now say, from everywhere to everywhere. And as I mentioned earlier, Leslie Newbigin calls Europe the once Christian 
continent. We're the first people to try to evangelize a continent that was once Christian, but is now those antibodies of resistance to the gospel. We've seen the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, 1989, and most countries there, and the emergence of evangelical churches all over lands that were previously closed to the gospel. In Drogheda, we have a special link with the Free Evangelical Churches of Lithuania, and we have quite a number of Lithuanians from there working with us in Drogheda. Very thrilling thing to be involved in a little project, and you may be pleased to know that the money for it came from generous Christians in this church and in this convention in providing some of the first evangelical books in the Lithuanian language. And I happened last year to bump into a pastor who walked into a church in Vilnius, in, or rather into a, a shop in Vilnius, in the capital of Lithuania, was absolutely thrilled to see the book by Jim Packer, Knowing God, in his own language. He had no idea that he could find a Christian book in his own language. Well, the money for that came from this church and this convention. And so the world has become a global village. Information technology now enables communication of the gospel in ways not previously possible. Some of you will have read the report, the recent one from the Middle Eastern Reform Fellowship, Murph, saying that in the last 40 years, more Muslims have been converted to Christ than in the whole previous 14 centuries of Islam, partly through radio, but increasingly through the work of internet and cell phone texting. There's a huge task still ahead if the Lord's command is to be fulfilled of reaching every nation, every tribe, and every language with the gospel. Still millions with no access to the gospel, over 5,000 languages yet with not a single verse of the Bible in their language. And even though the gospel has a foothold in almost every corner of the world, very often it's a very small percentage. One's only got to think of the island we're living on. Here we are in Ulster with the highest percentage of evangelicals in the world. Across the border, we have one of the lowest percentage, 1% or less in the Republic. And we've got to learn from the mistakes of the past. Great things have been done, but great mistakes have been made. The gospel too often has been associated with a flag or with Western colonial power. Incidentally, a lesson that Ulster Christians have not quite yet learned, that when we promote the gospel with flags and marches, it is another gospel. But nevertheless, that vision of Revelation 21, that vast multitude that no man can number, from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne, is nearer than it was today. Some two billion people in the world, at least nominally, name the name of Christ. And how has that come about? It all began with God's call to a childless couple in Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. And we can be certain that the God who has conceived his mission plan and the God who has imparted and sustained it to this day is the God who will complete it. But how is he going to do it? Well, his normal method is the treasure of the gospel through earthen vessels. God at work doing the humanly impossible through ordinary, flawed, sinful, weak human beings like you and like me. God overruling human sin and failure and disobedience 
God renewing his church and his mission in the darkest days and in the darkest places. God calling people like you and like me to share in what he is doing in his world. As I think back to my days as a student at Queen's when I came to faith in Christ, I think of so many friends who have served Christ in different places, people who went to the Christian Union. I think, for example, of some who have opened up their home for a missionary prayer meeting ever since in this country. I think of another who has committed his life as a teacher to uh, working with the Scripture Union so that generations of young students coming through his school will hear the gospel and will serve Christ. Think of another couple working among the Samburu in the north of Kenya, a very lonely mission station, very tough work. A young girl, the only white person, the only Westerner working in her area with the Dinka people of the Sudan. Another couple working with the Minobo in Mindanao. Another girl who has spent her life working with the Quechua people in Peru. Others working among the Afghan peoples. And others are godly mums and dads trying to rear godly children here in their homes in Northern Ireland. God calls each of us to a particular sphere of service. He calls none of us to work miracles, but he calls all of us to obey him in his call to us. And one of the reasons we're here at this convention this week is that God would open our eyes to what he is doing in the world and to where the needs are and to how you and I fit into his great purposes. Perhaps I can finish with two quotes which sometimes I find help me because sometimes I tend to become complacent in the work of mission and sometimes I tend to become discouraged. When I become complacent, I go back again to that lovely poem of Amy Carmichael, that prayer that she wrote in the form of a poem from prayer that asks that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee from fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher, from silken self, O captain, free this soldier who would follow thee, from subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, not thus are spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified, from all that dims thy Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, a faith that nothing can dismay, a hope no disappointments tire, a passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. I hope we can echo that prayer this evening. But for times when we get discouraged, I love to read these words of John Piper. It is our unspeakable privilege to be caught up with the greatest movement in history, the gathering in of God's elect from all tribes and tongues and nations until the full number of the Gentiles comes in and all Israel is saved and the Son of Man descends with power and great glory as King of kings and Lord of lords and the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea when the supremacy of Christ will be manifest to all and he will deliver his kingdom to God the Father, and God will be all in all. What a privilege for us to be involved in this great mission of God, and what a great tragedy 
the Messiah. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.